0: Um, questions on Calvin? Uh, number two uh, relates, I think, the idea that Calvin didn't try to, to uh, deal with things that weren't mentioned, you know, covered in the Bible. But I don't know what word we to, humbly to embrace. Mystery? Mystery. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very good. And we could, yeah. on that point, you know, any, anybody could come to Calvin's writings and kind of judge... How consistently he applies that principle or not, I think he does it pretty pretty consistently. Um, others might critique him along those lines. Anything else? Hard concepts. Uh, you can see why some people maybe react strongly against Calvin. Um, you know, my uh, my my point here is trying to show that uh, Calvin acknowledges the. Difficulties, even with with what we just went over, uh, but at the end of the day, in his mind, these are biblical concepts, and so uh, Calvin, his highest and final authority, is the Bible, uh, not human reason, uh, you know, not not anything else. And so, uh, where the Bible speaks, again, he wants to speak, uh, even if it raises difficult questions. But if the Bible raises a difficult question and doesn't answer it. Uh, Maybe there's something of spiritual benefit that should be going on there for you. You know, um, if if the Bible raises a question that maybe, let's just be honest for a second. Does the Bible ever say anything that rubs us the wrong way? Do you ever read something in the Bible and go, that makes me a little uncomfortable? Okay, does God know that you feel that way whenever you read it? he does. So do you need to pretend that you don't feel that way? No. Maybe maybe God is raising some of those questions for you and then is not immediately giving an answer. And, and what spiritual growth might God be looking for there? Faith. Yeah, maybe faith that he is wise and that he is good. And I don't quite know how to work through this issue, but I'm going to trust that there is an answer and, and that God's, you know a A perfect moral loving being um maybe it's even an issue um you know you read Deuteronomy, and there's some laws there that uh you know maybe maybe really make your hair on your neck bristle a little bit uh maybe it's something where there really is an answer and you need to study more but in the meantime god wants you to trust that there's light at the end of the tunnel you don't see it right now you don't see how to how to make that work you don't see god's goodness in that text maybe but you're trusting that it's there and eventually as as you grow he'll he'll show it to you he'll give you that answer um calvin wants to leave the door open for things like that not just reject things that we don't like or or, or something like that, you know, the, the Bible is meant for spiritual growth, not just to give you a bunch of answers to all the questions that you might have. Um, so again, you know, Calvin's highest and final authority is the Bible over anything else, in, including human reason, human wisdom, anything along those lines. This next lesson flips that. Uh, if you look at the quote at the top of the page, this is from... Uh, a Christian, a medieval Christian named Anselm of Canterbury. Uh, we haven't talked about Anselm in this class. I love Anselm. It hurts me that we're not covering Anselm deeply. Um, I read Anselm every year around Christmas time. So, you know, very, very big Anselm guy. Um, Anselm says this. He says, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe. Rather, I believe... In order that I may understand. Anselm's quote here, um, the reason I put it here is because it really lines up with what we were just talking about with Calvin. Sometimes people approach not just religion, but life in general, and it's kind of this idea if I can't understand it, it must not be true. And Anselm says, that's just not how life works that's not how it works in general that's not how it works with uh with religion in particular all of you have taken math classes and just because you don't understand how an equation works doesn't mean the equation is untrue does it just because you don't understand right now quantum physics does not mean that quantum physics is a pseudoscience you you don't have to understand all the nooks and crannies in order to believe that it is true. Anselm says, I'm not seeking to understand the things of God that I may then respond by believing in God. He says, in fact, I don't think I could ever understand the things of God unless I did what first? Unless I first believed. You remember 1 Corinthians 2. We've received the Spirit, which allows us to understand and then accept the things of God, right? And so for Anselm, faith first, reasoning second. Faith seeks understanding. But it's not that faith has to be built on having all my, answer, all my questions answered first. There's a movement that occurs, I'm dating it roughly to the 1700s, that's not fully accurate, but there's a movement that occurs roughly in the 1700s called the Enlightenment, and in the Enlightenment, that order is largely reversed. We're going to have understanding seeking faith, and if, if, if we don't think we can understand, then we should not believe. If it doesn't seem reasonable and rational, and if it doesn't make sense to us, it must be untrue would be the idea of the enlightenment called it at the top of the page the death of mystery rejection of everything that calvin stood for basically number one the greatest movement in europe after the renaissance and reformation was the enlightenment roughly in the 1700s during this era rationalism is what prevailed ration you can see the uh the word rational there someone's rational they make sense they're logical you know it it fits with what's going on in your brain so during this era rationalism uh reigned supreme human reason was thought to be uh completely sufficient to give you truth even as it relates to spiritual and religious matters this is really not a christian idea christian Christianity says that sin has not just touched one part of us, it's touched the whole part of us, including our, our reasoning abilities. We call it sometimes the noetic effect of the fall. Sin plays tricks on our mind. Uh, you've probably heard someone summarize it before as sin makes you stupid. You ever seen somebody that just out of a desire to to sin and sin, they they get addicted to sin. Sin just leads them down a stupid path. It doesn't make sense. They become irrational. Romans 1 talks about how all human beings under the curse of sin will suppress the truth of God. Okay? Until their their minds are renewed and enlightened by the Spirit. So this idea of sin, human reason is supreme and human reason is sufficient to get you to truth. It's not really a Christian idea, but it starts to really reign supreme during the 1700s. Nothing is above our reasoning ability. That is the highest thing. That's the highest way to achieve truth. Bible falls underneath it. What the church says falls underneath it. Everything falls underneath human reason. Number two, While some Enlightenment thinkers remained committed to Christian orthodoxy, which I would say was rather paradoxical, um, many denied Christianity outright or sought to modify it to make it seem more reasonable. Next week, uh, I will not be here, we won't have class, but I'll send you recordings. Next week, we're going to talk about something called the Neo-Orthodox Project. Neo-Orthodox Project says that it wants to keep the same old Christianity, but dress it up in nicer clothing. Basically, what it wants to do is it wants to maintain as much of historical Christianity as it can while appearing reasonable and rational in order to appeal to people who think human reason is kind of the supreme thing. Uh, So many people are going to try to modify Christianity to make it seem more reasonable, but many are going to say that Christianity is just outright wrong. It doesn't make sense. There's too many of these mysteries and paradoxes that Calvin would have highlighted. They don't line up with our human reasoning ability. It looks not just like mystery, but it, it It's not just tension, but it looks like contradiction. It doesn't seem coherent. It doesn't seem to make sense, an Enlightenment thinker would say. And so many during this era will reject religion, Christianity in in particular. Number three, Christian traditions that were influenced by the Enlightenment, and again, we'll talk about some of those next week, would often see discrepancies between reason and religion, science and scripture. And reason and science were given priority over theology and the Bible during the Enlightenment. You know, um, during this era, well, not quite during this era, but a little bit later on the heels of the Enlightenment, uh, you know, Darwinism will come to the forefront. Darwinism is a theory regarding what? Origins. origins, evolution and human origins. Where did we come from? Uh, according to Darwinism, where does life come from? Yeah, there was this big bang that we don't really know why it happened, um, but it happened, and then over a period of billions of years, uh, very small microscopic organisms went through a series of very large and rapid adaptations. And whenever that happens on such a large scale, we refer to it as evolution. And these microscopic organisms eventually grew and diversified and gave, uh, you know, the diversity of species that we have today. So according to Darwinism, where do you come from? You come basically, I'm being funny here, but not really. You come from pond scum and It's not that you were created specially. It's that you're a product of time and chance. All right. According to Genesis 1 and 2. What's your origin story? Where does humanity come from? Yeah. God made... A man out of the dirt and then breathed into him and gave him life so created specially by god in his what it's image yeah in, in his image and likeness right so uh we're created in god's image all right do those line up very well not really okay So these people, uh, uh, number three, the Christian traditions that are very influenced by the Enlightenment, all right, what they tend to do is they tend to give priority to science and human reason over Scripture, all right? They're not going to want to say, uh, you know, let's just completely axe Genesis 1 and 2 out of our Bible, but but what they're going to say is we've got to find a way to reconcile this, and they'll say, you know, we know based on human reason that darwinism is true that means that genesis 1 and 2 isn't historical it's not true so what we may do is we may do something where we say well yeah you know uh genesis 1 and 2 was written to a pre-scientific community and god couldn't give them all of the details of how he created the world via darwinism but maybe we say that god was kind of overseeing this whole process or or maybe we say that genesis 1 and 2 um you know it's a really good story and it's a helpful story but you know sometimes jesus and his ministry would give these short fictional stories to make a spiritual point what were they called parable maybe maybe this is more like a parable you know maybe God is uh you know not giving us all of the scientific historical details of how creation went down, you know how could shepherds in the middle East you know four thousand years ago understand that uh you know it would have been so far over their heads I mean these people thought that the sky was like a dome over the earth or something you know so so maybe he gave them sort of a parable maybe he he gave them kind of this short fictional maybe maybe we maybe we even call it mythology uh you know, account in order to, uh, in order to, you know, teach them something. You know, it, it is true. They do come from God, ultimately, you know, not as directly as this says, but ultimately from God and, you know, make this sort of a move. You see how this gives priority to science over scripture, right? Um, how would Calvin have approached this, you think? real like you probably approach a lot of it as mystery because it doesn't say that that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. but it doesn't say for sure that it is yeah maybe you know calvin would definitely give priority here though right so so maybe i mean we don't know calvin lived before darwinism uh was, was was really articulated but maybe he would say you know um there's something mysterious that's going on here that we you know, the Bible doesn't really quite speak to it, so I'm not going to speak to it. Maybe he kind of resolve himself to silence. Or maybe he would say, nope, these look very contradictory. So I, I don't really care what the scientists say. But, you know, this is just, this is just out. Maybe Calvin makes that sort of a move. Um, you know, I... Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe he does that, or, or maybe he does try to reconcile it. But you know, this word especially is not going to have a place in Calvin's thought if he's looking at this. This word probably isn't going to have a place in Calvin's thought because, you know, does Genesis one and two seem like a parable? Does it seem like God's talking about creation? You know, um, by the way, sometimes people will say that Genesis one is poetry like hebrew poetry it's it's not it doesn't have any of the elements of hebrew poetry at any point uh so you know it seems like it's trying to give you um i'll I'll say this i'm comfortable saying that genesis 1 and 2 should not be read the same way as a science textbook would you be comfortable saying that you know it doesn't read the same way is there anything about hydrogen no you know you know nothing about molecules or atoms you know, I would say I'm, I'm I'm not comfortable reading Genesis 1 and 2 as if it were a science textbook. That's not what it's trying to do. Um, there is something that we have to talk about when we look at something like Genesis 1 and 2 called the uh, idea of accommodation. Um, God accommodates himself in Scripture. You know, 1 John 4 tells us God is spirit. Okay? But in order to communicate truths about himself he uses body language all the time okay is god sitting up in heaven as a bearded old man with a with a with a body like jesus still has his body god the son still has his body but is god the father sitting up there in bodily form is he flesh and blood like us no but all the time in the old testament it talks about the arm of god and the eye of god and whenever it says that god is angered it literally in hebrew what that says is his nose burned. He's using human language in order to teach us truths about himself. Should we take those, or should we take them literally? No. Is it true language? Yeah. Is it literal language? No. Right? God's accommodating himself. Um, what language did the Hebrew people speak? Hebrew. Hebrew. So guess what language the Old Testament is in? Hebrew. Hebrew. He didn't put it in German. He wanted his people to understand what he was saying. All right, so, you know, is it beyond the pale of the imagination to say, you know, um, maybe Genesis 1 and 2, as we're thinking about creation, maybe God could have been much more scientific. Maybe there's a lot of details that are left out, all right, that weren't really spiritually important for shepherds right after the Exodus to know about. Maybe he put it in terms that they could understand. Maybe he put it in terms that they could get. He was accommodating to them, all right. You know, he's not giving them a 21st century science textbook. Can you imagine that? It's kind of a funny mental image. You know, this, this dude who, like, his job is to just walk with sheep, and he's trying to, you know, memorize the periodic table. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think that we can go there. I don't think that's beyond the pale of, of the imagination. Calvin goes so far as to say that the scriptures are baby talk. He says, in the Bible, God lisps and slurs to us as he accommodates to us you know any thought that we have about god is far short of the reality if you close your eyes and thought about god's grace are you even close to comprehending it one of my professors used to say it's like a kid that draws have you ever had a kid draw a picture of you and then they come up to you, and they're like, look. And, and you're like, what's the question that you always ask? You don't want to guess what it is, so you say, oh, that's so good. Will you tell me what it is? You know? And then they say, oh, uh, Mr. Jack, this is you. And you know, part of you maybe wants to be offended by that. You're like, I don't look like, what is up? My ears are like two different sizes. My nose is disproportionately long. But do you get mad Adam? No, you think it's sweet. And what do you do? you take it home and where do you put it the fridge. on the fridge all right my uh one of my professors used to say every theological thought we have about god is like a kid's refrigerator art compared to the reality right um god is condescending to us he's beyond language and our language really comprehend him of course not and so you know the entire Bible is is accommodation. How much more does Genesis one and two have to be to you know these people that you know are are primitive hunter gatherer type farmers? Uh, you know it, we shouldn't expect it to read that exact same way. But there's something that we do have to do whenever we come to this issue, and uh, I would suggest that enlightenment stuff usually goes too far. It's it's willing to really marginalize what the Bible says in order uh, to give most of the space and room to human reason and science. And, it, and it's really almost disrespectful to the scriptures. Uh, going on, number four, in Enlightenment Christianity, which we might also call progressive, which is what goes in the blank progressive, or we might call it liberal. Or the, the term that I kind of like the most is post-conservative theology. Uh, we're we're moving beyond they would say we're moving beyond what uh, you know historically Christians have believed we're not conserving those beliefs we're we're moving forward in them we're progressing in them that would be their argument uh enlightenment christianity was convinced by a fellow named david hume that belief in miracles for instance was unreasonable hume was, was an atheist but he influences a lot of christians um I was reading a book for an ethics class recently written by a Christian, and almost every page he was quoting David Hume. Um, So what's an example of, uh, you know, these people kind of marginalizing the scriptures, putting human reason above the words of scripture? Yeah. Sorry, so David Hume, that belief in what was understood? Miracles. And how do you spell his name? H-U-M-E. So, so this is a good uh, illustration of what we're talking about here. All right, David Hume is an atheist who really does not like religion. And, and he's trying to show that belief in Christianity is unreasonable. And if Hume were in class right now, uh, he would try to convince you that it's not reasonable to believe the miracles recorded in Scripture. This is how he would do it. All right? um, Let's say that Isaac was was outside he was working on the roof of the building all right and and let's say that he's outside working on the roof of the building and sophia's on the bridge out here and she comes walking over and whenever she comes walking over she sees isaac slip and fall and his leg breaks in two and i'm talking like bone out of the flesh it is broken isaac is screaming in pain And Sophia starts running towards him to see if there's anything she can do with her Summer Institute nursing (laughs) knowledge to help. And as she gets closer, lo and behold, the bone comes back together and the flesh covers it up. And Isaac gets up and he's totally fine. And he's able to go back up onto the roof and keep working. And Sophia runs in here and she throws the door open. And she goes, guys, guys, guys will never believe what I just saw. Isaac was up on the roof, he fell, his leg broke. Broke, broke, bad broke. And then, miraculously, it was healed. Are any of you going to believe her? No, no. Okay, if it was me doing it, would you believe me? No, wow, thanks, a lot. (laughs) Mr. Graham, based on what she told us during the break when I think you were out, if she saw that, she probably would immediately faint. Okay. <laughs> she so, so, no, not that bad. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's why. So, so we wouldn't believe her because totally against. Yeah, uh, her. Yeah. I was, right. I was being a little hard on her, but she. Uh, <laughs> she oh, she she, she, she deserves is, it. She, she deserves <laughs> it. She uh, she may not go into nursing, but anyway, that's, oh, another, okay. that's another story. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I I do this in my church history class. I talk through this, uh, and. Uh, I use a different kid every time. And what's really funny about it is I've never had a kid say, yeah, I would just, like, automatically believe it. Okay? Even the kid that I select, if I said to them, okay, so, uh, like, last year it was Slade Sims, all right? I said, Slade, all right, you go out, you see that happen to Mr. Wrench, you come in, you say it, and I start going through, are any of you going to believe Slade? No, 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 no. And I get to Slade, and I said, Would you even believe it? And you know what he said? He said, no. I would think that my eyes were playing a trick on me. I would think that I just saw things. I would think that maybe I just, you know, something weird happened. But I would have a hard time even trusting my own eyes. Okay? So Hume says, what would you need in order to believe that the miracle actually happened? What would you need to believe the miracle actually happened? We need Isaac to tell us that he okay, let's say that Isaac fell, and then Isaac came in, and he said, You'll never believe what happened to me. That's what you mean, also me, to be the witness. Okay, let's say that. Let's say Sophia and Isaac both came in and said it. Maybe you'd be a little bit more likely to believe it at that point. But would you probably believe it? What would be other alternative explanations? They just came up with something and said, just Right yeah they're playing a prank on you they're messing with you you know and you know they're gonna ag it on for a couple of days and then finally you're gonna be like hey i do believe you and they'll be like gotcha you know <laughs> i mean you're gonna there just seems to be more likely explanations no matter how far back we take it to the point that even the person you know i say Slade, did you see this and 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 he even says i would think that there had to be a more likely explanation my eyes just really played a weird trick on me It's weird that that would happen. It doesn't seem likely that that would happen, but it seems more likely than actually seeing a guy break his leg and it come back together. Hume would bring that up. That's the argument he would present. And he would say, you know, we could stretch this thing out, and what we would probably find is it really doesn't matter how much proof you were provided. You know what you would probably do? probably still, even if you did believe it, you would do it reluctantly. Even then, you would have a really hard time believing it, okay? We're we're not accustomed to seeing things like that, and so it's hard for us to really believe it. Plus, we have all these stories where people say, this miracle thing happened to me, and it's been debunked. We've seen that happen so often, right? So Hume would say, okay, if you are so resistant to believe in modern-day miracles. If you're so resistant to even accept the testimony of a friend that you know to be reliable, why on earth do miracles all of a sudden get a free pass when a bunch of unscientific, you know, pre-modern people, shepherds, uneducated people, tell you they happened? Why all of a sudden is it easier to believe it whenever it's in the Bible than whenever it happens in your own friend group? He would say, if you're not going to give your own friends a pass, why are you giving the Bible a pass? He would say, if you don't feel like it's reasonable to believe in modern day miracles, it actually seems less reasonable, he would argue, to believe in these ancient miracles. So this type of argumentation is very Uh, you know, it's a good illustration of the type of things the Enlightenment brings up. Hume is an atheist. He thinks it is unreasonable to believe in miracles here and now or all the way back then. And he's going to push people on that and say it's not reasonable to believe these stories of miracles recorded in the Bible. That's going to lead a lot of people to follow Hume in walking away from the faith Walking away from the mystery, walking away from the miraculous in favor of human reason and science. It's going to lead some people who want to retain Christianity and Christian principles to feel like they really need to modify the faith. Number five, um, this led, this type of argument from Hume led liberal Christians to deny important teachings in the Bible, they want Christianity to seem more reasonable, so it leads them to deny uh, certain important teachings, such as the virgin birth. Following Hume's uh, reasoning, why would you deny the virgin birth? What is it? A it's a miracle. Do virgins typically give birth? No. It's a miracle. So if you deny miracles, you're going to deny the virgin birth. Why is the virgin birth important, by the way? okay it's the birth of jesus but it had to be if 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 it weren't a a virgin birth jesus would have been born just as a sinful man right it seems like scripture says that original sin is passed on through the through the man and so if uh if jesus is born of a human father then does he inherit in original sin that that's an issue we need him to be perfect all right um who is his father yeah he's begotten of the holy spirit and so you have, uh, he's, he's born of Mary, meaning that he is human, and he's also born of God, meaning that he is, he, yeah, he's sinless and he's also divine. He's the God-man. So the virgin birth is an enormously important uh, part of the Christian faith, but people uh, who kind of hold to this Enlightenment version of Christianity where they're modifying the faith to make it seem reasonable, they're going to get rid of the virgin birth really quickly. They'll get rid of Jesus' atoning death. Um, A couple of different arguments that will be thrown out this way. Um, Number one, you've sinned before God. And how is it that God punishing someone else all of a sudden makes that right for you? Imagine it in a law court situation. You go to Ray County Courthouse all right do this again all right um let's say that i commit a crime i've killed someone all right i've I've murdered all right and i'm i'm about to get the death penalty at ray county courthouse they don't do that there but let's just pretend right about to get the death penalty and then all of a sudden isaac walks in and he throws open the courtroom door and he goes don't do it i'll take his place instead and the judge says yeah makes sense and they kill isaac and they let me walk free is that just a liberal Christian is going to say, if you don't think it's just in Ray County Courthouse, why does it all of a sudden become more just in the courtroom of the cosmos? It's just in a life for a life, but it's not just in you letting them murder. Letting murder, because, yeah. What do murderers deserve? Okay, they deserve death. What do sinners deserve? Okay. So, why is it that an innocent man take my death penalty in god's court but we would say that it's wrong for an innocent man to take my penalty in a human court i have a couple of very good answers to that question i'm, I'm going to withhold them for now because i want us to you know part of this class remember is to be able to get in other people's shoes and why do we want to do that So we can understand, we can deal with their arguments at the best because, you know, I could just throw up a a straw man and make this look stupid and knock it down and have we actually learned anything? No. We got to let ourselves be challenged, okay? So maybe these questions make you a little bit uncomfortable. I would say that's a good thing. You learn when you're uncomfortable. You, You don't learn when you're comfortable most of the time, all right? So I think that we have, Christianity has very good answers to this. Uh, i'll throw that out there we're not going to deal with them quite yet we can we can do that whenever we do Q and A towards the end all right but let's let's keep going uh so deny the virgin birth deny jesus's atoning death um they deny the resurrection what is the resurrection jesus rise from the dead okay jesus rising from the dead um do dead people come back to life not typically uh have you ever seen that happen no uh especially not after three days and so this would qualify as a miracle. You know, Jesus's death on the cross would qualify as a miracle as well. Somehow Jesus dies and that makes you totally right with God. That's a pretty miraculous thing that's happened. So, you know, all these things would, would, would fit the bill of miracles. Um, so the resurrection, the heartbeat of Christianity, liberal Christians deny that it actually happened. They don't believe in a physical resurrection. They don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus. We'll talk about what they do believe in in a second right? They'll, they're going to deny that he actually physically rose from the dead. Uh, therefore, they will also deny the second coming. Why? Is he in heaven? No, he's in a grave somewhere near Jerusalem. So second coming is is denied. Uh, they're going to usually deny the afterlife. Liberal Christianity, Enlightenment Christianity will usually deny that there's an afterlife. Uh Can you use science and prove that a person has a soul? No. No, you can't. Um, You know, especially not a soul that's immortal. All right, all that you can prove through science is that we are material. And so uh, this is something supernatural about us that science can't prove. So uh, Enlightenment Christianity will typically deny that. Or if they do teach an afterlife, um, Typically, they only teach one part of the afterlife. Which part do you think? Heaven. Heaven. All right. The idea of hell will not be very appealing to them. They'll also get rid of things like the Trinity and the Incarnation. These are mysterious things, and we want everything to be fully reasonable. So, Enlightenment Christianity is usually what we call it: uh, Unitarian. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that basically what Arius believed. If you can think back to that lesson, okay. Uh, number six because scripture wrongly taught all these ideas enlightenment christians denied the truthfulness of scripture as well okay scripture can be uh, uh, uh it can be inspirational it can be helpful as you try to live a moral life the scripture contains truth but is it historically and scientifically accurate no according to liberal christianity Number seven, Enlightenment Christians, uh, what they will do is seek after the historical Jesus, distinguishing him from the Jesus of faith. Or uh, sometimes they'll call it the Jesus uh, of faith, or sometimes they'll call it the Jesus of myth. All right, so the way that this works is... um, We're going to touch on this whenever we get to neo-orthodoxy. We talk about a guy named Rudolf Boltmann who uh, I think is fascinating, just very, very wrong. Um, Liberal Christians will make a move like this. They'll say that you have the the Jesus of history, and then you have the Jesus of faith, or the Jesus of myth. Um, This one over here is the Jesus of the Gospels. This is the one that was born of a virgin. Um, This is the one that is the God-man, you know, the one that heals lepers, does miracles, the one that atones for your sins and rises from the dead uh, and has a second coming, all of that sort of stuff. All right? That's the Jesus of faith or the Jesus of myth. None of this is real. The Jesus, well, according to them, right? I always get worried whenever I teach a lesson like this to my church history kids because you all are great. You all pay attention to what I'm saying. Some of those kids zone out. And then I make a statement like that, and it catches their ear, and I think to myself, I'm going to get the worst parent email later. What do you mean the second coming and the resurrection? Well, if your kid had not been sleeping, we wouldn't have this problem, Right? terrifying it's my least favorite part of my job Um, pulpit ministry can be the same way sometimes Uh, I had a lady one time um, get upset with me about something I said in a sermon and I said well I didn't say that I said this it was something that sounded similar and she goes oh well that makes sense I didn't have my hearing aids on she was really upset with me I was like well maybe uh, maybe put your hearing aids on next time Uh, so um, the the Jesus of history Um, basically just you you take all the normal things about him by the way no one really doubts that there was a Jesus of Nazareth some people will be like yeah you know you know no one's ever really determined whether Jesus was a real person no self-respecting scholar really doubts that there's too much evidence that Jesus was a real guy alright sometimes you'll get someone who's like oh we don't know that for sure they don't know what they're talking about there's all sorts of evidence that Jesus really did exist and lived. There's more evidence that Jesus lived than there is evidence that Plato lived, or Aristotle, or Socrates. Um, way more evidence that he existed than, than Homer that wrote the Odyssey and Iliad. No one really denies that. So the Jesus of history uh, is a guy, he's a man. He was from Nazareth. Uh, he was a rabbi, he was a teacher that got a following. Um, and, you know, he went around and he, he taught people stuff. He did social work. Uh, and eventually, the Romans got really mad at him, and he was crucified. The end. Okay. Jesus of history. Um, sometimes, I, I don't know if any of you have, this is old school, so Jack will know what I'm talking about. but None of you probably will. There was something um, several decades ago called the quest for the historical Jesus. And whenever I meet people like in my generation who have heard of that, they usually think, oh, that was an effort from scholars to prove that Jesus really existed. It wasn't. The quest for the historical Jesus was saying, all of this stuff is just made up by the Christian community. What can we find about the real guy who actually actually existed? The the Gospels are inaccurate. They're fictional. So what can we find about the real guy who existed? All right? Um, So... According, on number eight, according to liberal uh, theology, the Jesus of faith is still valuable. He can teach us about morality. He can encourage us, inspire us to live upright lives. Basically, what a liberal Christian would say, in not so many words, is you read this the same way that you would read something like Aesop's Fables. You guys know Aesop's Fables? Uh, Tortoise and the Hare type stuff, Right? uh is are those stories real did they actually happen i like to think that they did but they didn't right um would love to see that someday uh but uh, you know they didn't but every time you read one of the aesop's fables they have like a moral of the story attached to it so what's the moral of the story for the tortoise and the hare slow and steady the race. yeah slow and steady wins the race okay um and you know any of those any of those fables has a moral attached to it What liberal theology would say, and and again, this is what's kind of birthed out of the Enlightenment, is the Gospels are valuable, but read them sort of like Aesop's fables. All right, what is it really driving at? Jesus heals a leper in Matthew 8. He touches the guy, he heals the guy. What is that story trying to communicate to you? Well, We would interpret it and say, well, you know, in scripture, leprosy is a picture of sin. And what this is saying is, you can go to Jesus, and if you ask him, he is willing and able to cleanse you from all your sin. Liberal theology would say, no, not that. What liberal theology would say is, Jesus was someone, and and I think this is true too, but this is where they're going to limit it. They're going to say, Jesus was someone who was willing to go to the outcast, to the least of these He was somebody that was willing to show love to to the overlooked and the marginalized. And the point of the story is that as you reflect on Jesus, the message is, go and do likewise. The, The message is, imitate Christ. Should we imitate Christ? We should. But is there a lot more to it than that? Yeah message of the gospel is not imitate christ the message of the gospel is here's what christ has done for you you accept that good news and then of course after that you want to have a life that reflects christ but but imitating christ is not the message of the scripture primarily right and so um According to to liberal theology, Jesus, in number eight, the Jesus of faith is valuable. He can teach you about morality. He can encourage you to live upright lives. So listen to his sermons. Acknowledge the good works he did in his life. Go and do likewise. Um, And this is all particularly emphasized in something that's called the social gospel movement. I'm dating that to the 1900s. Again, that is not quite accurate, but it's it's rough. Um, but the social gospel movement, um, there's two guys associated with it. The first is Walter Rauschenbusch. If you've ever heard a German name, that is it. (laughs) The other guy is Charles Sheldon, And the social gospel movement, um, what it aimed to do is um, it, it wanted to focus a lot on following the moral and ethics of Jesus. They look to him as kind of an ethical standard, as, as, as someone to imitate. And so it's very concerned with taking care of the poor and the marginalized and, uh, you know, opening hospitals for sick people and giving money to the poor and, and things like this. Um, walking in the footsteps of jesus modeling the life of jesus as you go the social gospel uh is not focused at all on uh you know having forgiveness of your sins or gaining eternal life or evangelism or things like this it's entirely about meeting the physical temporal needs of people around you not a bad thing not a bad thing but missing the primary point of the gospel that the in Christ, God is reconciling the world to Himself. Um, the social gospel movement makes a really big deal of Jesus' teaching regarding His kingdom. And the social gospel believed that it was the job of the church to bring about God's kingdom here on earth. Through our social efforts, through what we do politically, through caring for the poor, we want to see Jesus' kingdom manifest itself on earth. It's, Jesus' kingdom isn't something Jesus brings to earth. It's something that the church builds on earth. It's something that's in our hands. And so we should you know, support political and governmental programs and economic programs uh, you know, that are really emphasizing caring for the poor, caring for the least of these, uh, you know, taking care of people in need. We should dedicate our lives to lives of service and love and mercy ministry and things like this. Um, the, uh, the social gospel uses the Jesus of faith to make this point. They'll say, think about the, you know, the, the parables of the, of the Bible. Think about the, uh, the message of the scripture and, and, and what it teaches you. In this myth, we have this idea that Jesus was fully God, and he sat comfortably... Uh, in a position of privilege up in heaven with his father. Yet he fully emptied himself to identify with poor and lowly people in order to meet their needs. And so what the social gospel calls you to do is do likewise. The same way that maybe you're a, a, a person of means, maybe you're a person that has, has money, has connections, you should use those things in order to help those who are who are kind of in a sense under you, those who are in need and destitution. You should pour yourself out for them just as we see Jesus do in the myth of the New Testament. I don't even like saying that, but again, I'm using the language of of Rosh and Bush here. Alright. Um, the um, so so you have the uh, Jesus in heaven he uh, number one he, he empties himself uh for the lowly, and you should do likewise. Um, but then the social gospel, interestingly, has a very robust concept of suffering. They say whenever you start you know, really affiliating yourself with the poor and the lowly, and whenever you start pushing for policies uh, that are going to help those people, and you start pouring yourself out for those people, it threatens those who are in power. It threatens those who are wealthy and and who are, you know, always concerned with gaining more and more and more and and taking even if it's at the expense of the poor. And so the same way that the Romans got upset with Jesus, you know, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and helping the least of these and the lowly. And the Romans eventually look at this ministry of Jesus in his love and, and say this is a dangerous revolutionary thing and they put him on a cross know that you too might have to suffer for the kingdom. But you should see that Jesus, and this is where the language really gets bothersome to me, if it's not already. What the social gospel says is, um, the, the primary thrust of all of this is that you share in the faith of Jesus. Jesus gospel always says, put your faith in Jesus. Social gospel says, share the faith of Jesus. Even as he's suffering and dying on the cross, Jesus died in faith that love would eventually change the world. Love would eventually bring his kingdom about. Love would eventually have the last word and would bring a better world into this one. And so share the faith of Christ. Share the faith of Christ. Uh, Share faith of Christ. That love will change the world. And and then kind of the last point that I'll put up here is, um, to kind of inspire you in this, is the idea that Jesus is still in the world today. He is, in a sense, resurrected. Not physically and bodily, But Jesus lives on in the hearts of all who share his faith. So is Jesus physically, bodily alive? No, but he's alive in your heart. Sounds like a Disney movie. You know, he's alive in your heart because you share in his faith that love will change the world. No place for miracles in this. No place for, you know, you're a sinner before God, but Christ has died to make you right with him. Uh, obviously, no place for an actual resurrection. And it's not that Jesus is even really Savior here. It's that you are, he, he's your model. He's your forerunner, and you follow in his footsteps. It's not really Savior language. It's more leader language, all right? Not necessarily that leader language has a place in the New Testament, all right? But it's not the primary thing, right? Jesus is our leader. He is the person whose footsteps we're supposed to walk in. But primarily, he's Savior. And the social gospel doesn't leave any room for that. Um, In number eight, I give you the motto of the social gospel. uh, To read it one more time, this was particularly emphasized in the social gospel movement, which focused on what would Jesus do? You ever had one of those bracelets? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Yeah, based on the social gospel. Charles Sheldon, that's the uh, subtitle to one of his big books. What would Jesus do? All right, that's the question that they want to ask. If Jesus were here right now, what would he do? And I want to do what he would do. Is that necessarily a bad thing? No, but the entire focus of the social gospel is on that. Whereas the focus of historic Christianity has been on what has Jesus done? There's a place to ask, what would he do if he were in my shoes? And then try to model him and walk in his footsteps. But the primary point of the gospel is an emphasis on what Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection. Social gospel gets away from that and replaces it with this question, what would Jesus do? Hypothetically, if he were here, what would he do? No focus on objectively what has he done for the salvation of the world. Number nine, we've already gone over this. To be a Christian, according to the social gospel, was to be inspired by the self-sacrificial love of Christ and to follow his example by trying to make the world a better place. The cross was inspirational and calls us to share Jesus' faith that love can change the world. So Disney. So Disney. So Disney. Number 10, while trying to make Christianity seem more reasonable to the modern man, progressive theology largely sacrificed the core tenets of the Christian faith. No virgin birth, no miracles, no substitutionary atoning death on the cross, no resurrection, no second coming, no afterlife. Trying to make Christianity seem reasonable, they basically get rid of of everything that christians have believed and try to retain everything that christians do they try to get rid of the theology and keep the ethics what's interesting about that is that very quickly whatever one of the ethics is unpopular they'll change it they don't really respect the bible and so let's say okay we want to walk in the footsteps of jesus we want to have the ethics of jesus and. You know, Jesus teaches pretty strongly regarding divorce, but it's not very popular to teach very strongly regarding divorce. And so the social gospel might say, well, you know, at the end of the day, he was a pre-modern, unscientific, unenlightened, first century palestinian jewish man he didn't have it all figured out so you know we want to retain most of the ethics of jesus but what he says about divorce or marriage or something you know we can get away from that pretty quickly the social gospel will do things like that liberal theology will do things like that and so next week we will uh this this evening i'll send a uh An email. I'm going to record the one on the first and second Great Awakenings uh, because we're a lecture behind right now. So I'm going to send one on the Great Awakenings. Um, Next week, we are really going to uh, dive more into kind of the Enlightenment versions of Christianity uh, in a little bit more detail and talk about the Neo-Orthodoxy Project. Uh, with two men, Karl Barth and Rudolf Bultmann. And then after that, we'll talk about two terms that no one knows how to define, fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And I do mean that very accurately. No one has a good definition for them. So I don't either. But uh, I'm going to steal from a guy at Duke, George Marsden, and and try to give you something. So uh, that's about the best I can do. So we'll, we'll touch on those next week.